So um, I spent some time on the internet this week, and I've got to tell you, what I found there is terrifying. Laura got my joke. <laughs> so I'm kidding, but I want to acknowledge uh, that as uh, we begin today that, that this passage forces us to look at topics that there are some opinions about, particularly wealth and power. Maybe you've heard some of these opinions. Uh, they aren't subtle. You don't have to look hard for them. <laughs> uh, and the cat is out of the bag that I have an image um, while Stuart was looking for the right slide, got all the way to my, uh, my surprise image. So if you want to uh, show the image now, Stuart. Uh, I recently heard about this legend of the Gordian Knot. Um, has anyone heard this legend? Yeah, of course you have, Ben. <laughs> I didn't even, I could have just been like, Ben's heard of it. Who else has heard of it? <laughs> I, had heard, I heard of it recently. It's an ancient Greek story. It actually takes place uh, just a century or so after these events in Nehemiah. Uh, and it, it, it tells of an extremely complex knot that was tied onto an ox cart. And it had been prophesied that whoever could untie this knot would uh, be destined to rule Asia. So sort of like King Arthur and the sword and the stone. Now, who's seen that cartoon? More of us, right? So in 333 BC, Alexander was challenged to untie the knot, the legend goes. And instead of looking for a loose end and like licking his fingers and starting to like picket ends and chipping away at it, he pulled out his sword and he cut through the knot. So addressing this topic of wealth and power in the church today feels like trying to untie a Gordian knot. It's a jumbled mess. And every time you try to find a, a, a loose end and pull on it, it just gets tangled up in, in, in another mess. You find yourself maybe even worsening the knot by trying to untangle it. And so this is the knot that I've been sort of looking at and trying to untangle this week. And even this morning, um, my habit is to wake up very early on Sunday when I'm preaching, read through again. Usually I'm trying to kill about 500 to 1,000 words uh, in, in a manuscript. Um, and so this morning as I did that, um, I realized that I, I had a sermon that didn't hold together. Um, and so... Um, I have a lot of words here, and I'm going to say some of them, uh, but I'm going to pray right now because I need uh, God's help. <laughs> Father, as we've uh, said, this feels like um, a knot that we're trying to untangle, and even right now, by your Spirit, I need uh, your help to find the sword to cut through uh, this knot and um, feel anxiety uh, that I want to do it well, and I want to honor you in what I say. Uh, please help by your Spirit. Amen. So maybe you can see this knot. Maybe it's obvious to you. Maybe it's not. So as I've thought about this this week, there are social uh, dynamics, right, and, and economic dynamics that people from Aristotle to Plato to, uh, I don't know, Machiavelli and Ayn Rand and um, who else, Adam Smith, have talked about the, socio the sociological dynamic of uh, money and power. Um, there is the, um, the story that we read in Nehemiah resonates so much with what we experience today with the outcries of the poor, the rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer until the poor finally say, we've had enough, something has to happen. There's the spiritual dynamic of, so what does this mean? We're not, this isn't an economics lecture. So what does this mean for us as we try to follow Jesus? And if you spent some time on the internet, what you would find 
and you wouldn't take much time to find it, is that any pastor who takes seriously the Bible uh, or what the Bible says about wealth and poverty, they get a scary label just stamped on their forehead. Some of you know what this label is. They get called Marxist. And God forbid that they see wealth and power having an element of like a racial element, then it is a full-on cultural Marxist. And so it is a big, scary knot, and, and pastors who I respect and sort of want to follow in this get this scary label of heretic and Marxist. And so maybe you're seeing the knot. How do we begin to untangle this knot? I believe our task today is to study Nehemiah 5, to enter into what is a cultural sort of quagmire, something that has been debated for centuries and that is full of landmines in our own context, and to untie this impossible knot in a way that leads to Christ-like maturity and avoid saying anything that sounds like something Karl Marx might have said. Who's with me? You guys ready? So the question I want to ask us today is, can we pull an Alexander the Great? Is there a sword that would let us cut through this knot? And I I think maybe there is, and I think that the sword we need to cut through this knot is right here in this text. And um, I think that if we actually pick up the knot and start sort of looking for ends to untangle, then we've already lost the game. Because it's like the world gave us the knot and said, figure this knot out. And what we must do as Christians is cut through the knot with a sword of the Word of God. So Jesus taught us by this example, uh, you know, Jesus never answered a question straight, right? But he always found what was the heart of the question. And I want to follow his example today. And so if the question is sort of, are you, you know, woke or anti-woke? I say we pull out our sword and we cut through the knot. We don't answer that question. It's a false question. Anyway, that's what I hope we can do today. So what is this sword that I've been hinting at? It is this, that generosity that honors God begins with the fear of God. Generosity that honors God begins with the fear of God. That's it. And so I imagine that the people standing around Alexander when he pulled out the sword and cut through it probably felt maybe how you feel hearing that statement. Sort of like, well, you, you, you can't just, that's too simple. <laughs> You didn't, you didn't do, you do the thing you were supposed to do. And so I wonder if you feel that way. Like, well, you didn't really deal with the problem. Maybe you feel that way. Maybe you don't. Um, but I think co- complexity at times in the church uh, is simply a way to justify ourselves. So we see this with questions like, who is my neighbor? And how many times must we forgive? We like to to make things more complex than they need to be, uh, to remove the spotlight from the simple question that is shining right at us, will you obey God? So the real issue isn't wealth or power or poverty or injustice. The issue is, the sword that cuts through all of it is, do you fear God? And so we see this twice in Nehemiah 5. And so he he calls a meeting to address the injustice, and uh, Nehemiah says to the nobles and the officials, What you're doing isn't right. You should walk in the fear of God and not invite the reproach of our foreign enemies. So he doesn't call this assembly and make a moral argument. He doesn't appeal to the common good. He says you would not be acting this way if you feared God. 
And then Nehemiah uh, tells us why he's done what he's done uh, as instead of the governors that came before him. And he says, the governors who preceded me had heavy... Uh, the governors who preceded me had heavy bur- heavily burdened the people, taking from them food and wine as well as the pound of silver. Their subordinates also oppressed the people. But because of the fear of God, I didn't do this. So twice, Nehemiah says that the thing underneath the behavior, the reason or the motivation, is the fear of God. So what we see on the surface is a turning from injustice and exploitation of the poor. But what's happening underneath the surface is fear of God. So Nehemiah, we've seen this in the past, but Nehemiah again shows himself to be an astute student of Scripture. So where does he get this idea that how we treat the poor is linked to the fear of God? Where does he get the idea? Leviticus 25, 35 through 37 says, If your brother becomes destitute and cannot sustain himself among you, you are to support him as an alien or temporary residence so that he can continue to live among you. Do not profit or take interests from him, but fear your God and let your brother live among you. You are not to lend him your silver with an interest or sell him your food for profit. Right here in the middle of this passage that says, Do not profit off of the poverty or desperation of a fellow Israelite. Do not lend with interest. We see, but fear your God. Fear your God and let your brother live among you. In the same chapter, Leviticus 25, verse 17 says, You are not to cheat one another, but fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. A little further down, the chapter addresses what's to be done with an Israelite who becomes poor and has to turn to slavery. This is verse 43. You are not to rule over them harshly, but fear your God. You think Nehemiah has been having some quiet time with Leviticus 25? Maybe. And the study of that passage gives him clear eyes to see what's going on under the proverbial hood when he looks out and he sees this injustice and exploitation of the poor. So God honoring generosity begins with the fear of God. And this is my central point. But it asks some questions. So what does the fear of God have to do with generosity? And why would the fear of God create any kind of generosity? And so... Um, there are four things that I want to see. These are good uh, and true things. I'm going to tell you them, and then I'm going to tell you how I wrestled with them just this morning. But the things are this. God is the owner. God is the author. God is the arbiter. (laughs) Thank you, Cameron. And God lends us his anger. So not quite four A's, but four similar-sounding words that mostly begin with A's. I did my best. So the fear of God reminds us of these things. First of all, God is the owner. So the question is, what does God own? Fill in the blank. The answer is yes. We read it this morning. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. We also see this in Leviticus 25. God says to his people, the land is not to be permanently sold because it is mine. (laughs) You are only aliens and temporary residents on my land. The nobles and the officials had forgotten the fear of God, which would have kept this truth front of mind for them. 
They would not have used their wealth in violation of God's law because they would have remembered that they are only secondarily and temporarily owners of their own wealth. So Paul asked the question this way rhetorically, what do you have that you didn't receive? The answer is you don't have a thing that doesn't belong to God. I don't know if you like that. I don't really like that. But the first thing that that the fear of God does is keeps this truth before our face. We are temporary residents here borrowing God's stuff. Maybe Ecclesiastes would be a good book to visit to remind us of that from time to time. So secondly, the fear of God calls us to remember that God is the author. That is, he is the one who calls things into existence that do not exist, as Paul writes. So this whole thing, not just biblical history, but all of it, all of human history is a story that God is telling. We are not the main characters, but he is. And Nehemiah says that the nobles and the the officials have forgotten this plot, and they're trying to write their own story. When he says that what you've done Uh, I'm sorry, what we have done our best to buy back our Jewish countrymen who were sold as foreigners, but now you sell your own countrymen and we have to buy them back. At this, they, they couldn't respond. They're silent. Nehemiah is reminding him that God is redeeming his people. We've done our best to try to cooperate with this plan of redemption that God is working out that God has told us that he is going to send us into captivity, but then we will come back. We've been seeing this all along, how what Nehemiah and Ezra are doing is a part of what God promised he would do. This is God's story. God doesn't lie and his words aren't empty. He has said it, it will happen. But these nobles and officials have forgotten the fear of God and they start to work against his plan. So he's the author. Third, uh, the fear of God reminds Uh, us that he is the arbiter, which is just ridiculous. He's the judge. (laughs) I had to say arbiter once so that it works, but I'm going to shift now to judge. He will judge what we do with his world and how we play in his story, the part we play in his story. So like the owner in Jesus's parable of the talents, God will judge us, his servants, with what we do with his stuff. We are mere stewards, not true owners, and he is coming to judge whether or not we've used his stuff and lived in his stories in ways that that accord with the owner's values. The judgment will put this question to us. Have we represented God in what we have done with his world and how we've lived among the people? So exploitation of the poor to extend our own wealth or comfort or or ego or whatever it is, is a sure sign that we've lost the fear of God, who is the owner and will judge. And then finally, um, the fear of God allows us to feel God's anger at injustice. Verses 6 and 7 say, I became extremely angry when I heard about their outcry and these complaints. After seriously considering the matter, I accused the nobles and officials. So this point follows the others, and it has to, I think, because unless we fear God as the one who owns everything and directs the course of history and uh, will will judge our actions, then our anger at injustice will be a sinful human anger. 
And sinful human anger leads to more injustice. So without the beginning, uh, without beginning with the, this, these fears, then we'll be stuck in this power cycle, which Frederick Nietzsche calls a master-slave morality. And it's just this endless cycle of, of struggling for power and dominance and control. And there's a whole lot of this Nietzschean anger uh, today as we look at the outcries against injustice. We can empathize with that anger, we, especially when we see that there is real injustice. But if we begin in this fear of God, then our anger will have a godly character and can lead to real redemption. We also see that this fear of God as the impetus for this anger allows Nehemiah to be rational. He considers the matter, and then, so he stops, he contemplates, he considers the matter, and then he accuses them. And we see again, Nehemiah, because he, he is prayerful and contemplative, he accuses them in a way that they could not defend themselves. So unlike sinful human anger, Nehemiah's anger leads to real repentance not just external change. And it didn't lead to what we see in our world so often, sort of this in-group, out-group of the sinners and the righteous. We see that the wealthy exploiters and the poor exploited join their voices together and praised God. Verse 13 says, The whole assembly said, Amen, and they praised the Lord. And the people did as they promised. So there are the four things. God is the owner, the author, the arbiter, and he gives us his anger toward injustice. And so these things are true. This is, this is good and right, I believe. But this morning, as I was reading through this again, I'd planned to say that, that this is kind of it. The fear of God leads to this kind of uh, generosity. And it just, I just was like, that's not true. And, you know, <laughs> instead of what I, what I wanted to do was hit, like, command A, command X, and then freak out. Be like, what am I going to say this morning? James remind us that even the demons believe and tremble. This does not produce godly generosity, just stopping at the fear of God. And so... Um, I've been wondering, since we planted this church, what would it look like um, to boast in my weakness as a pastor? And instead of sort of uh, tidying this up, I just thought, well, here it is. Uh, seven o'clock on a Sunday morning, realizing this, this doesn't work. But I, I think God gave me a way to salvage it. <laughs> and, and that's to say that God-honoring generosity begins with the fear of God, but it doesn't end with the fear of God. So, if yeah, if I'm completely honest, all this fear of God talk doesn't seem to fit quite right. Um, have, you ever, have you ever bought a new shirt, and it just some, it feels like it's on backwards, and you're like, it's not. It's just like, what's wrong with this shirt? I hate that. And that's kind of what, what, what this feels like, right? It's just, it's like, it's right, but it doesn't feel quite right. You're just like, ugh. So the question is, uh, how does this fear of God stuff hold true for us today in light of what Jesus has done? What does the New Testament teach us about fearing God? How might this relationship change since God has revealed his love to us by sending his son? 
And so the first thing that, that we can say is that the command to fear God is found in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It holds. So Paul writes to the Corinthian church uh, in 2 Corinthians 7, So then, dear friends, since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Peter tells us to honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honor the emperor. But what does this fear look like for us? Because we've been redeemed from sin. God has showed us his love. We are adopted sons and daughters of God. And so what does it mean to fear him? So I think, I think Jesus helps us live in this tension. Jesus says this to his disciples. I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who can kill the body and after that can do nothing more. But I'll show you the one to fear. Fear him who has the authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, he's the one to fear. Seems straightforward enough, right? We should be frightened because God has the power to throw us in hell. We are sinners in the hands of an angry God, as one theologian has said. Maybe. But Jesus goes on to say, very next words, aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? And yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. Indeed, the hairs of your head are all counted. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. So maybe not so much God dangling us above hell flames and just waiting to cut that line and watch us fall. He knows how many hairs are on your head. Something occurred to me this week when I thought about that. I'm losing a lot of the hairs on top of my head. I don't know how rapidly. What occurred to me is it's a constantly changing number. (laughs) It isn't a fact that God knows about me. It is an awareness of me. I don't know if that makes sense to you. God updates the number every time a hair falls out of my head because he knows me and cares about me. I can trust him with my significance and I can trust him with my security as much as I can trust him with my eternal home. So I should not fear. Jesus says, fear God, and he says, fear not. So what do we... What do we make of this? Um, John, 1 John 4, 6, 16 through 19 says this. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, uh, by this is love perfected with us so that we might have confidence for the day of judgment, because he is, so also we are in the world. I copied and pasted. If I read that wrong, I'm sorry. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. 
So there is a kind of awe and reverence and respect and honor that God deserves, and we should come before him with that kind of fear. But when we come to him, knowing that we come completely empty-handed and expecting to receive grace upon grace and that he has lavished on us every spiritual blessing, we find that in the presence of that perfect love, our fear is cast out. And the Bible tells us to abide in that love. We stay there in it. We live in it. And so if you are... I'll skip that part. I know you all. You are in Christ. So let the love of God cast out that fear and replace it with the reverence and awe that a child might have for a strong father who will discipline, but the child never doubts his goodness and his love for her. And now with, with this sort of fear replaced by this love-soaked reverence for a good father, what does this mean for how we think about wealth and power and generosity? So Henry Nouwen uh, said that it is precisely because we are not imprisoned by the fears of the world that we can minister in the world. And I just have to stop there to say that uh, last week Cameron quoted Pope Francis. Uh, Here I am quoting Henry Nouwen. And I just want to tell you, we are totally Protestant. Even, in some ways, even Reformed. But we may be tempted to think that without the fear of God, we would be free from fear. And this is not so. So, to lose our fear of God is to gain the fears of the world. And there are many, but I think that when it comes to wealth and power, we can boil them down to a couple really central fears. And that is that we are insecure and that we are insignificant. These are these fundamental fears. So Paul said that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But I wonder even how much that resonates with us today as we don't, like, I, you know, I can't remember the last time I touched a dollar. I mean, it probably wasn't that long ago, but it's like, there's, there's none in my wallet, right? But I think if we think about the ways that wealth and power play out in our lives and shape our hearts, that we can dig a little deeper and say that the core questions is not this love of money, but it is a a desire to find in wealth and power our significance. These questions like, do I matter? How much do I matter? How can I prove that I matter? And then security. Do I have enough? Am I prepared for the unexpected? What will happen if I don't have enough? And when you don't find your significance and security in God, you will be haunted by these worldly fears. Now, we know there's these litany of uh, people, famous people, who have gotten all the riches and fame and whatever that they wanted and were unhappy. Names from Marilyn Monroe and I think Tom Brady, right, said something once about achieving all this and what did it mean uh and then i just saw something maybe yesterday like a like a video that popped up was jim carrey talking about how he's unhappy and you know getting all that he wanted so trying to answer these most sort of fundamental human needs for significance and security with wealth and with power is like taking sand and shoveling it into a shopping cart 
Or like you need milk at the store and you just pour it in the shopping cart. You can't hold it. Or as the, the prophet Jeremiah said, my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they've dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. So when the, when the wealthy seek to answer the most human questions about God from the position of wealth, um, the result is exploitation and injustice. They'll always feel the need to accumulate more, to get more wealth, to prove that there's something, to hedge against times of trouble. I mean, I've, I've known some very wealthy people who, who always, they're convinced that they're always on the cusp of losing everything. It's like anxiety-ridden. And then when the poor seek to answer these fundamental questions without God, the result is it tends to be resentment, which can lead to more immorality. So rich or poor, those who seek to answer these questions of significance and security without God are going to be riddled by anxiety. Um, And as Nietzsche teaches us, they'll tend to moralize their own positions. I'm editing. I want to say to you, um, I'll say one more thing about the love of God, and then we'll look at Nehemiah's example and be done. So some of you don't make any money. You literally don't get a paycheck ever. You are filled up with God. You have what you need. The significance you need is not in a dollar amount because God loves you. God, the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, who holds the universe in his hand, loves you. Knows, listen, knows the numbers of hairs on your head. Not as an idea, an abstract thing. God loves you. And so if you make zero dollars a year, like Jan, uh, plagued by office quotes, If you make zero dollars a year, God loves you. And if you make a million dollars a year, what if you go to, I mean, like you, you are, you need nothing else because God loves you. Your significance is not there. Your security is not there. Um, I happened to put on a podcast yesterday of a sermon from a recent Harbor Network event. And the guy started saying a lot of the things that I've just been working on. Uh, this week in the sermon, and um, and as he was saying, talking about God's love, he just stopped and he said, "This feels like liberal." <laughs> and uh, it hit me because I was like, "How stupid are we when we when we think that we can overemphasize God's love, that we that God's love is is somehow less than than our ability, like that we can ex- extend it or that we can we can exhaust it with our with our imaginations like God's love is more than we think and I want us to just feel that today that whatever your relationship with wealth or power is you don't need more of it you you are okay with what you have because God loves you I'm sure that if I had written that before right now I would have said it better <laughs> Finally, I want to end by looking at Nehemiah's example. 
He appeals to his own life uh, as an example for what this kind of generosity that flows out of this fear of God might look like. He says uh, this, Furthermore, from the day King Artaxerxes appointed me to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year, uh, sorry, yeah, from the 20th year until his 32nd year, 12 years, I and my associates never ate from the food allotted to the governor. The governors who preceded me had heavily burdened the people, taking from them food and wine as well as a pound of silver. Their subordinates also oppressed the people, but because of the fear of God, I didn't do this. Instead, I devoted myself to the construction of this wall, and all my subordinates were gathered there for the work. We didn't buy any land. There were 150 Jews and officials, as well as guests from the surrounding nations at my table. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some fowl were prepared for me. An abundance of all kinds of wine was provided every 10 days, but I didn't demand the food allotted to the governor because the burden of the people was so heavy. So the timing of this is a little weird. We're not going to really talk about this, but Nehemiah has been promoted to governor, from cupbearer to governor. Uh, but he says that unlike all of those who came before him, he didn't take the food and the silver and the things that were uh, allotted to him. He didn't take any land. His servants participated in the work, just like everyone else. He didn't oppress the people. And he says he did all this because of the fear of God. So instead of using, uh, instead of taking what was rightfully his as the governor, he uses his own resources to feed 150 Jews and then other guests from the surrounding nations. It says he supplied an ox and six sheep and some birds, lots of wine, but only 10 days, every 10 days, so no big deal. <laughs> but he did this from his own pocket. And he doesn't say that, no one ever should do this, but he saw that the people were already carrying a heavy burden. And he doesn't take what he has a legal right to take because of his empathy for the difficulty of the people. So instead of increasing his own wealth, he dips into his own uh, metaphorical pocket to bring 150 people every day to his own table. So I want to end with this sort of challenge to think about uh, your own resources and your own spheres of influence. What would it look like uh, if we really believe that all that we have belongs to God? What would it look like if you really believe that we can use our wealth and our power to cooperate in a story of redemption that God is telling? What would it look like... Um, for you to live like one who will give an account for what you do with your stuff and your influence. So I want us to see that this is so much more than don't exploit the poor. <laughs> like, make sure your business practices are ethical. Make sure that you give away some of your money to a good cause. That's, that's all fine. <laughs> but it's a call to see that your significance and your security is filled up in God. Those tanks are all the way full. You make more money? Great. The tank was already full. You don't make any money? Great. Your tank is full. There is no room to add just a little more significance by adding a little more money. There is no room to lose a little significance because you don't make any money. Anyway, I think maybe I've beat that, but... Fear God and live in a way that is keeping with the gospel and invite others 
to that table to experience the good news that at this table there is rich and poor, there are young and old, there are male and female, black and white, highly educated, high school dropouts. So if, if all we have belongs to God and all of these people are brothers and sisters or even lost people who God is drawing to himself, then we can be generous with what we have, all of us. And this doesn't just mean money. Like, we cannot claim the rights that we have. We cannot let people know that we are in some, like, power position by doing something like quoting Nietzsche so that you know that I know about Nietzsche. So we can be rich without being arrogant and give without it feeling like a a need to be seen or to be the kind of person who gives because we're not looking for significance. God has given it to us. We can be poor without feeling uh, second class or whatever. We have all the significance we need, and we can be in the middle without uh, thinking that maybe just a little bit more and we'll be secure. My point is, this is the kind of community This is the kind of people that our lost neighbors and friends long for. In fact, it's what we all long for, I think. This is what, you know, even in a secular, post-Christian, whatever you want to call it, age, our lost neighbors want a community where there are people people can be known, loved, where the rich aren't, you know, there's like the... You know, you've seen the bumper sticker like, eat the rich. The rich aren't wicked people. They're brothers and sisters. The poor aren't sort of lazy or um, immoral somehow. They're brothers and sisters. We form a, a weird family that should be like a shining beacon in our dark world. So this knot that we started out with has really nothing to do with us as the church. These words like woke, anti-woke, this isn't our language. It's about love. It's about a, a radical sort of deep love that makes the gospel visible and plausible to our neighbors and beautiful. So I believe that as our world becomes more sort of broken and wicked, the day is coming and is now here when the lost and the broken and the confused and the suicidal and desperate and despairing are going to be looking for this kind of community, maybe as like a last-ditch effort to find some sort of meaning, maybe even before sort of suicide or total despair, just a last-ditch sort of effort to find something that can explain their own lives in this world to them. And I want to I wanna be here for them. And I want to be so filled up with God's love myself that I can reach out to them with God's love, not to sort of validate some sense of my own significance, not to show that I am something, because that significance tank is full. I can extend that love and receive them just like God received me even when I was his enemy. So 
I've shared my weakness with you today. Um, this is probably the most sort of like, I've got words here and I'm going to use them sort of. And my other sort of goal as a preacher is to be shorter. And I've failed just entirely on every point. But I pray that the Holy Spirit would use these, uh, these things to change us, to change, to change me and to change us, to make us the kind of community that can live out this relationship with our resources and with our influence in a way that attracts our lost neighbors and friends. So on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This meal of bread and wine reminds us every week that Jesus hung on a cross where he was poured out for us, for the forgiveness of our sins. So Jesus had the power to call down angels and to come off the cross. He had the power to reign on the throne and to crush everyone. He's the one who, by the way, was there, the word of God in the beginning. He had the power to consume the earth with a word. (laughs) And he hangs on the cross. He doesn't use the power that he has. The power, by the way, James and John were eager. They were like, should we call down fire now? Jesus allows himself to be hung on a cross, beaten, mocked, and killed. The one for whom all things were created allows himself to be beaten, mocked, and killed. And he suffered injustice so that he could identify with us, so that he could be poor and abused, so that he could feel what it feels like to be an outcast. He chose suffering. So like Nehemiah, Jesus didn't take what was rightfully his. He, didn't, uh, he gave instead from his own riches to invite us to this table. And this meal is like a little tiny slice of this great meal that we're longing for. And the call today is that we are going to be fed at this table, spiritually filled up. Feel, as, you, as you taste the bread and the wine, feel the love of God. Just maybe if you imagine like a fuel gauge going all the way up. The love of God, your significance, your, your significance and, and your security are all the way filled as we take this meal today. And then the call is to go and feed others as we have been fed. I'm going to pray and then uh, take the time you need to uh, examine your heart. When you're ready, go take the meal and we'll sing a song together. Lord, again, I pray that you would use... Uh, you, you know the sort of insecurities that I bring today. I pray that you would, you would massage your love into our hearts so that we aren't questioning whether or not we are significant, whether or not we are secure, that, but we would feel your love, that we would be safe in your hands. Sons and daughters of God who aren't looking for wealth or power or status or anything else to fill us up. Remind us of that now as we come to this table. And would this fear of God turned into a awe and reverence because of your love for us be the, the, the motivator and the impetus for any kind of generosity or outreach or when we talk to our neighbors, uh, when we share the gospel, would it be an overflow of your love for us? Not out of a, a need or a lack 
uh, but out of fullness. Please do this in us, Lord, and, and may we be a light because we, can, uh, we are forming this kind of community that is based on, rooted in, and sort of and extended to others this, this love of God that you have given us. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.